Agencies have made some progress, a little bit more than usual, on the biannual high-risk list, just out from the government's main overseer. In it, the Government Accountability Office offers detailed risk reports on dozens of troubled federal programs. Congressional committees see the high-risk list as a sort of checklist for their own work. The 2023 list came out Thursday. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more of what it says. And Drew, three new areas were added this year, and yet GAO said some areas had improved. Let's talk about those first. Of the 37 areas total that are on the high-risk list, 16 areas, GAO said that those improved. This is actually the most number of items on the list that GAO says has improved since it started rating things in this way. so That a couple, goes back to 1990, by the way. It's right. quite a while. <laughs> quite, quite a while. while. A couple of examples are VA's healthcare program as well as postal service. So there are a couple of areas where GAO is saying things are getting a little bit better. But on the other hand, of course, there are areas of regression. An example of that is the DOD Business Systems Modernization Program. U.S. Comptroller General Gene Dodaro testified before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. He explained a little bit more. Congress provided stable funding, at least for the next five years, to the surface transportation area. It didn't solve the problem long term, so it's still on the list, but there was good progress. Congress passed Postal Service Reform Act that eliminated some of the financial pressures on the Postal Service, but the Postal Service business model is still not viable in the future. They continue to lose money, and that remains on the list as well. Congress has provided some additional resources to uh, IRS, which uh, deals with our high-risk area of tax administration on that area. Yeah, he tells it straight. And let's talk about what's new to the list, some interesting areas. There are three areas that are new in just the past two years. The newest one, which was just added in 2023, was the federal prison system. This is a lot of ongoing issues with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. They actually came out dead last in the best places to work rankings with a score of 35.5. And some of those low scores might be caused by a lot of staff attrition within that agency Their use of overtime actually went up over 100 percent, which Dodaro said points to that low staffing with the agency. And Charles Johnson, another expert at GAO, explained more. Not only did overtime go up, it's continuing to go up. And there's been continued gaps in their staffing as well. And the numbers are continuing to decline. Uh, They have a 15 percent gap in their authorized staffing levels. We've looked at their efforts to calculate staff. Uh, and we didn't see a good methodology in place. And that's one of the recommendations we have made. That, And we think the new director, Peters, is committed to, to looking into that issue. We've had several meetings with her, including the Controller General has met with her. Uh, at the time we were meeting with her, she was in the process of doing strategic planning. She also is looking to establish clear goals with respect to their staffing needs as well as other programs that they have as well. And I would put congressional audio quality on the high-risk list too. But, yeah, Bureau of Prisons plus the terrible conditions of the employees that are there that have been documented widely. There's sexual abuse and there's just physical danger from being around the prisoners. Really bad situation. On the good side, though, there have been a couple of things removed from the list this year. One of those was the 2020 decennial census. 
The GAO said that they've made progress in addressing things like data quality, and they've worked on implementing a lot of the recommendations from GAO. Of course, GAO said it's, it will still be monitoring the 2030 census that is coming up in several years from now. Another area that has been removed from the high-risk list was the pension benefit programs. That's just they've said that there's a better financial positioning with that program now. All right. And a lot of the high-risk programs often have certain fundamentals in common, like financial management, human capital management, cybersecurity. What did GAO have to say about that one? That is definitely a top concern for GAO. It's something that Dodaro pointed to right away in the hearing. He said that it's a national security issue, but a lot of it, of course, comes back to how the federal workforce is staffing up or addressing issues with cyber workforce staffing. He also said that the White House has a national cyber strategy, which is a good thing, but that there is not yet a way to implement or measure how to really execute that strategy. So there are a lot of problems, and many of them stem from cyber workforce issues. Managing Director of GAO's Information Technology and Cybersecurity, Nick Marino, said more. What we'd be looking for is, one, a pushback to the agencies to continue to identify where they have gaps. Even though we've seen some improvement in this area, there's no comprehensive way for us to know whether each federal agency actually knows what it needs, first of all. The second thing is that each agency then needs to focus on not only recruiting and hiring, but also retaining uh, really, really highly qualified staff. We know there's a shortage not only within the federal government, but across the nation. And so it'll be important for them to leverage not only the tools that they have right now, but recent legislation that's called on creative ways to try to generate ideas for how to keep Uh, federal government employees actually staying within the federal government. And another cross-cutting issue is federal human capital management. That's something that has been on the list, Tom, since 2001, so more than 20 years. Human resources is still a government-wide skills gap, and there are even challenges within the Office of Personnel Management itself. Dodaro explained more. A lot of the human resource people were trained over the years, going back to the civil service reform days, to be compliance-oriented, to make sure you don't do anything wrong. in in these areas as opposed to what can I do to be helpful to help in these uh, difficult areas. So we need to change that mindset, change that approach, and get the right people in there to support them. Then I think things will be a lot easier. And by the way, did Gene Dodaro in testifying do his usual performance of not looking at any notes but having a photographic retention of everything on that high-risk list? He did not have a single paper in front of him, Tom. Yeah, it's amazing. I, it just astounds me. Every two years we see this, and the man never looks at the notes because I think he looks, reads his report and memorizes it. He should have been in opera. Also, it came up at the hearing that uh, GAO itself is doing pretty well with its own human capital management and staff management. That's right, Tom. Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee Chairman Gary Peters gave a little bit of a shout-out to GAO. And I know last month the Partnership for Public Service named GAO the best place to work in the federal government for mid-sized agencies. Congratulations for that. Great, great honor. And I'll add it was the third year in a row. Now that's worthy of applause. Three years in a row. Three years in a row. (laughs) It didn't sound like cast of thousands was there to clap for that. But yes, that is something. And by the way, GAO is a congressional agency. They don't even have to do the FEVs. They do it voluntarily. So kudos there too. Absolutely. Yeah, they've had it for a couple of years, as they said. And, you know, I think they're trying to keep that up for the next couple of years. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. 
David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I 
really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it 
you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.